Welcome back to Blind Love Radio. I am your host, Anna Rosen. And if you have not seen my quarantine secrets little project on my Instagram, Blind Love Radio, then please check it out. Read everybody's anonymously posted secrets, submit yours, and I am obsessed with it. It's so fun. It's so vulnerable. It's so funny. I just feel like it's a really fun and lighthearted yet departed way to connect with everybody in the community and um, just kind of release a little tension because I think that's what we all need right now. Um, So let's get right into today's guest. So fun. I have Sarah Craft on the podcast. You can find her on her Instagram, Sketchy Craft. That's craft with a K and scratch, scratchy, sorry, sketchycraft.com for all of her prints. She's an amazing artist. She does these amazing drawings that she talks about um, a little bit more on the podcast and how she got into that. And you can check all of it out online, Instagram, her website definitely take a look. You're going to love it. And we talk so much about myth and planets and tarot and her mental health journey. Um, She's so open, so honest, so vulnerable. It's so beautiful. She's so talented. Oh my God. Drawing, myth, blogging, like so many things. She talked about starting her own podcast, which I am very excited about. And I'm just so happy that I had her on mine. Hope you enjoy and stay safe. And I love you. Don't you know Adele wears a suit and tie? So I'm driving down to 61 in early July. Wide as a cotton field and sharp as a knife. I heard him howling as he passed me by. Okay, so I like to start just by asking you to introduce yourself and say a little bit about you and what you do and what you create, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, hi, my name is Sarah Renee Craft, and I am an artist and a writer and um, a mental health blogger. I create artworks that are drawn using only red and blue pencil exclusively. It's a way to sort of represent the dichotomies between the light and the shadow, the highs and the lows. And it's been very healing for me. I also um, was diagnosed with bipolar disorder five years ago. And um, I've come to realize that that's actually might even be a side effect of my multiple sclerosis diagnosis, which is pretty recent. And my artwork and my writings have helped me to explore those diagnoses, what they mean to me, 
the stigmas against them and to create a window into um, those sort of, um, I'm sorry, <laughs> I lost my train of thought. Um, it, helped, it just, I want to create a window into that perspective so that people can sort of get a firsthand account into what it is like living with chronic illness and so what it's like living with bipolar disorder and living with anxiety and to sort of break those mental health stigmas while at the same time offering support to others and other creatives like me. Uh, because when I was first diagnosed with these, I didn't have any resources and I didn't have anything to turn to. And so I want to help be one of those voices in the community for people like me that needed this kind of art and content and something to grab onto that they could relate to. And so that connection I feel is very much represented in my work, which features ribbons, which are all about connection. Um, the ribbons also represent um, kind of a perversion of the red string of fate. And rather than fate, I want to rewrite the story. And in rewriting the story of fate, I'm showing that you can rewrite your own story. So. Wow, I love that. Oh, I have like my hand over my heart. Like that's so yeah. sweet. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I pulled a couple cards like before we sat down. And one of the cards was the Eight of Swords. And one was also like the full moon. I use like the Pagan Otherworlds deck. I don't know if you're familiar. Um, I'm not familiar with that deck, but I am familiar with the cards because i I'm creating my own tarot deck, so I'm very that. much a student of tarot. So, like, the Eight of Swords, we have somebody who's, like, I feel like it's just so indicative of this idea of, like, creating your own story. Like, it's, like, we build this story up that, like, everything is going to, like, overpower us and kind mm -hmm. of, like, breaking free of everything. Um, how do you feel about that card? Do you feel like it relates at all? I do. I feel like, especially with me, the Eight of Swords represents a part of me that had been raised up in a lot of toxicity and a lot of these toxic lessons and, and um, untruths. I feel like there was a part of me that was creating an identity because the Eight of Swords represents the willingness to stay in an environment that is not suited for you, um, that you are purposefully blinding yourself to it and keeping your hands behind your back and sitting among the swords when you could easily just walk out. She's not trapped there. She could walk out of it, but she's choosing to stay in that identity. And um, I feel like that's what I did for so many years of my life where I did not address any of my my phases, my highs and lows. I didn't practice emotional self-regulation. I um, let my anxieties get the better of me. I surrounded myself with people that were not encouraging my growth. I was in a really unhappy marriage and a really, really uh, relationship that honestly was not good for me or for him. And I clung to that identity with all my might and tried to force myself to look like I was an extrovert or like I was this entertainer side. You know, I've got that Gemini sun. I always feel like I have to be funny and entertain people and keep them interested 
or um, they're going to abandon me. And so I had to, that card really hits home with me because I feel like so much of my ribbon series is about cutting through those binds, those false ties and those false identities that bind us in place. Um, you'll notice in my artwork, so many of the figures, these, these women that are in these white gowns that almost look like wedding dresses are sort of trapped in place and they're learning to cut themselves free and to speak their truth for the first time. So, yeah. Ooh, so what would you say to somebody who is still like feeling like they can't break free or what would you tell yourself like at the beginning of your journey, knowing everything that you do now? Mm, there's so much. Um, what I would say is that, um, and this is something my therapist, and I love having a therapist, by the way. Um, I feel very blessed because I know not everyone has access to um, that kind of guidance and to those kind of tools. And they have to sort of, practice self-therapy and, and practice surgery on my own, but I feel very blessed to have that. Um, one thing that she said to me at the beginning of her journey, she said, um, never ever try to outrun yourself because you will catch up. Mm. And what I think she meant by that was that when we adopt these identities, when we blind ourselves and we stay in that eight of swords energy of surrendering to this sort of shell, this identity that is not authentic, when we're not communicating our truth, when we are, are silencing ourselves and not being true to ourself, we're, we're running away. We're, we're practicing self-abandonment. And at the end of the day, you will catch up eventually at some point in your life, whether it's Saturn's return, whether it's the tower energy coming into your life, you know, this, this total breaking of your foundations, whether it's um, a disaster or whether it's a broken marriage, such as in my case, or even a new diagnosis, something that's going to come into your life that's going to force you to face yourself, to, to get back in touch with that lover's card energy of facing your true self. You're eventually going to have to do that. And so I think that it's better to just get quiet, listen and surrender to the process to allow yourself to be honest, to know that if it seems like people are leaving you may not even like them anyway. They may not even be people that resonate with your, with your morals and with your beliefs and with your values. And if it feels like you're being abandoned, well, maybe those ties are being removed so that you can move to, to a new space so that you can move in your mind to this new space. You know, it's like that old saying, wherever you go, there you are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you you are still going to be you at the end of the day. And you're still going to have these feelings of doubt, of unfulfillment, of self-abandonment, no matter how hard you try to remain in that eight of swords energy, you, it will, it will come back. It will eventually manifest and, and continue into that nine of swords energy of anxiety, of sleepless nights, of nightmares, 
I know I had a literal um, experience with sleep paralysis when I tried to remain in that eight of swords energy and stay in my bad marriage and stay in these friendships that weren't suiting me. (laughs) Yeah, that's scary. um, Yeah, that sleep paralysis, that, that nightmare was so profound it actually reconnected me with my my childhood love of mythology and and set me on this journey that led me eventually into this ribbon series that has now led me into mental health blogging and tarot. So I had no idea what was coming for me. I did not know my way out of that energy, but I knew I couldn't stay in it. What made you feel like safe enough to take the first step? I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. I did not feel safe enough to take the first step. I, I actually felt a lot of resentment at the time. I felt like I was forced into taking that step. I, um, I'd spent so many years um, cultivating this identity and looking like I was one type of person when I was not. I was trying to seem like I was this high energy, really funny, really, I mean, I still think I'm funny, but (laughs) I, this really high energy, really outgoing, constantly producing popular artist type with a great marriage. And people would tell me how jealous they were of my relationship. And I was just trying so hard to look like this one thing. And then the cracks were showing and I was miserable. I was miserable and it was manifesting in, you know, bad skin, and sleepless nights and anxiety and fights with my ex-husband and, um, and sleep paralysis and these really profound dreams are almost like divine messages. They were so profound and so connected and rooted into my unhappiness. Um, and I just kept having just one catastrophe after another happen again and again. And I was losing more and more friends that at the time it felt like I had done something wrong. It felt like I was not committing to the identity good enough to make them stay. When at the same time, I think what it was is that it was a lot of my, my traumas and my disorders that made me stay, not that made them left, made them leave. Um, I feel like too often we think that we have to remain in identity to, so that people don't leave. Well, we don't realize that committing to that identity might be what's making us choose to stay. And so it eventually led to, to the situation where um, I had just a series of these unfortunate events happen, which is not as charming as Lemony Snicket. (laughs) (laughs) It was just this one thing after another, after another, um, that was happening. I, um, that eventually culminated into, um, my, my ex-husband and I, um, separating and eventually divorcing. And at the time I, from all the other traumas that had happened, you know, I lost a, a dear friend of mine I've known since high school. 
um, to his battle with schizophrenia. And that had a really profound effect on me. And um, I'd also had a miscarriage and that had a really profound effect on me. And I was going through all of these invisible struggles that nobody saw because I I didn't want them to see it. Mm -hmm. And so when this life just was completely altered this tower energy like a lightning bolt just came and just cracked the foundation was like okay you've tried way too hard to negotiate and to hang on to this you have been way too long in this devil energy of being addicted to these patterns and trying to negotiate that you're allowed to keep them no more you're done what was no, the no. first myth that you said like kind of sparked this I don't know like love for our stories and kind of set you on this journey well when I was a child my father was actually a, um, a Latin and English double major in college and he was an English literature teacher but his his understanding of literature was heavily rooted in Latin, which means Greek myths. That's what that means. And so I have so many memories of him um, looking at looking through the telescope in our backyard. And he would point to the stars and he would point out the constellations and tell me the stories behind them. And so I remember him telling me all about Orion. And then I picked up encyclopedias. I started reading about Orion and I was really horrified because I was like, wait, Orion was born from this ox skin that these three gods peed on. Like, what the heck is this stuff? This is too weird. (laughs) And, but I fell in love with it and I just kept reading and reading and reading and reading. And it was more just collecting stories and collecting fairy tales and just collecting them and knowing them. But I didn't, feel a profound connection with those stories until so many years later. And I'd even tried to um, create a a comic series based on Eros and Psyche, just because I thought it was a lovely romantic story that I didn't truly understand the depth and the scope of. Um, and, And that didn't pan out because, again, I didn't truly understand the depth and the scope of it. And I don't feel like my work is aligned with, with, with comic and sequential storytelling, which is a beautiful, unique art form, but it's just not the work that I'm meant to do. Um, and then after the Eros and Psyche story, I, um, I was feeling really lost and I had that, that sleep, that episode of sleep paralysis that was so profound. I caught myself researching and looking up gods of nightmares I was like, I'm curious if there's gods of nightmares, if there are any gods of these bad dreams, because this was so profound and so earth shattering, such tower energy that it felt bigger than myself. This dream just had so much truth in it. Um, It just felt bigger than me. And so I kept researching and researching and researching trying to find it and the more people I talked about the more I talked with this one friend of mine um, Jim Milligan who is a sci-fi writer and he said oh yeah yeah no I've had dreams like that and you know he comes to me sometimes in dreams the, the, the pale one you know he he's the imposter and he takes the form of people we love and I was like whoa what are you talking about man <laughs> 
this is freaking me out. And so I started researching, like, is this a common dream? Is this a common trope? So I wouldn't feel so alone. And I stumbled across the god um, Iklis, also known as Fobiter. So he was known as Fobiter to man, which means the feared one. And he was known as Iklis to the gods, which um, I think it means to take form. And he is one of the Oneroi in Greek mythology, which is one of the dream gods, the most famous of which being Morpheus, who's known as the king in dreams, um, not the king of dreams. It's a totally separate um, mistranslation. Um, but Morpheus was the only dream god who could take the form of man and speak the language of man in dreams. So he was the deliverer of divine messages and he usually enter the dreams of powerful people like kings and prophets and he would take the image of a king to deliver his messages so that people would listen to him mm. and in real life uh the dream daemons as they're called the oneroi are described as having black furred bodies and pale faces and, and black wings, like the wings of a bat. What we imagine modern interpretations of demons might be, like in uh, Night on Bald Mountain, <laughs> Disney's Fantasia. Um, but they're described as that. And supposedly these dream demons would fly through two doors, one made of horn or one made of ivory. And depending on which door they flew through when they exited the underworld, because the land of dreams, great mythology is found within the underworld, that would signify whether or not the dream was true or if it was false. And because the Greek word for ivory and for um, horn the words sound similar to the Greek words for truth or for lies. And so it's actually a, a pun, a Greek pun. I don't know the exact words off the top of my head. But um, Icholus was one of Morpheus's brothers. And so it was said that Phantasis, who was the god of nonsensical dreams, would take the forms of all the objects in your dreams. So any objects, dressers, tables, trees, Anything like that was um, the manifestation of fantasies in your dreams. So when you have those nonsensical dreams where you're, say, running through a field and suddenly you're walking on the bottom of the ocean and then suddenly you're flying and that's the work of fantasies that you're in the presence of. Um, and then Morpheus would be, you know, the messenger of dreams, telling you a literal message in the form of a king. And then you had Icholus or Fobiter, and he came to you in the form of sleep paralysis or nightmares. And he was described as being a pale, uh, having a pale face, being the pale one. And he would take the form of beasts and monsters in your dreams or be a great imposter in your dreams. And he's usually depicted as a red-eyed snake or a red-eyed beast um, in, mm. in Greek mythology. Uh, but that's, he's benevolent. He's trying to teach you something through your fears. And so for me, reading about this just resonated so strongly. I was like, oh my gosh. And this was kind of my window into shadow work and into working with my shadow 
because it gave me a narrative to grab onto, almost like a way of, of hacking my trauma and hacking <laughs> everything I was going through. I can instead gravitate towards myth and work with myth to face my nightmares. Oh my God, I relate to this so much. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and then by researching the land of dreams and researching um, Iclis, Fantasis, and Morpheus, that led me to Hypnos, which then led me to Thanatos, which then led me to Nyx, which then led me to Erebus, which then led me to Hades. And I just kept expanding outward from the Greek land of dreams into all of the Gnothic uh, the thonic, sorry, um, underworld gods and goddesses. You, you, you know, you can tell when someone's only read a word and never heard a word because they don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> that just makes them smarter. You know, they yeah. read it. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, all these underworld gods and goddesses, I just kept researching just voraciously and falling so in love with the Greek underworld, um, also known as the invisible realm, which is what the, the name Hades actually means, is the invisible one. Um, there are some scholars that say that Hades is not even his true name um, and that he might have had other names. He's been identified as um, Adonais is one of the names, but the name Hades means the invisible one. And he has no temples in antiquity because they were afraid to speak his name because they thought that they were invoking their own death through the ancient Greeks if they spoke his true name. And so the way that you pray to Hades is literally to hammer on the ground and, and say your prayers and, <laughs> and say your prayers to the ground and to try to invoke his benevolence. But other than that, you don't want to talk of your own death and you don't want to say Hades true name because you don't want to invoke your death. You don't want to invoke his judgment upon you. And so what is just, his story? Like what, like, cause I feel like, like I've never heard that archetype talked about in such like, like a sordid, like double-sided kind of way mm -hmm. where it's like, I feel like you're invoking such like this beauty of like this benevolent, like even saying the words like benevolent and um, I fell in love with this. Like, what is there to love about him? Like, what drew you to that story? What, what is healing about him, etc.? By him, do you mean Hades? Yes. Yes. Um, I love Hades. I actually strongly identify with Hades in a lot of ways and with the Hades and Persephone dichotomy. Um, so Hades, I'll just tell his origin story because I think it's so fascinating. Yes. Um, so in the beginning, there was, um, the God Uranus, who was the primordial God of the sky and Uranus was 
slain by his son Cronus, who was the god of time. And so a lot of people think of the god of time as being someone who's the god of passing time. And he's even been conflated in medieval artwork with uh, depictions of father time and even depictions of the Grim Reaper actually come from Cronus as this winged god of, of time with his scythe because he slayed his father with a scythe and then took um, sovereignty over the land and over the earth. Um, I like to think of Cronus as a god of frozen time, of someone that is trying to freeze time, which again, getting back into that eight of swords energy, um, as mm. someone who's trying to freeze time and keep this identity, keep the status quo, keep things the way they are. But we are not... Um, static beings we are ever growing and ever changing and ever turning over oh my in God, cycles so okay i just have to stop you this is so interesting because like oh, the you. fool being ruled by uranus too and yes. then like this idea of like jumping into this new world or identity without any type of safety net like no promises and like breaking that pattern. Yes. And like it can happen so suddenly. Yes. And so you can almost think of the struggle between Cronus and Uranus as being um, almost a struggle between the old world that has to be slain, almost like <laughs> the fool is sacrificed in a way instead of just walking off the cliff to, to, to his own to his own doom he's he's pulled down by gravity pulled down by time you know mm -hmm. that that's i like to think of the world card as being you know is obviously tied with with um saturn energy and saturn is is another is you know another name for cronus and so the world card represents that time is up you know it's it's a very terminal card you know the fool's journey through the major arcane has gone through a full rotation and whether you're ready or not that sky is coming right back down and you know and so that that oh my god card, and then I they're like, like side by literally side? slays the the fool card and, and because it's both you know uranus says the fool is both the omega and the alpha and so it's it's kind of like an ouroboros that connects back into itself <laughs> wow or a lemniscate which you know my, my my art series is called lemniscus and so it's very much about those cycles and those connections wow okay you're blowing my mind keep on going <laughs> <laughs> thank you um so Going back to, to Cronus as this god of frozen time, as I like to think of him when I work with him, as someone that isn't quite ready to move on to the new world and wants to keep the world the way it is, um, he doesn't realize it, but he starts to actually embody the same bad behaviors as his father, as this person that is taken over the world and trying to, again, keep it the status quo, which is what Uranus was trying to do. And then Cronus slayed him. And then he, now Cronus is sitting on the throne. And then you have his wife, Rhea, goes over to, um, to her sons 
and and ask them to to slay to slay Cronus. And so what happens there is Cronus wants to stay on the throne. He does not want the world to change. He does not want the world to revolve again. He wants to stop it right there, right before the new fool, right before the new golden sun, the, the naked babe as the fool enters the world. He wants to stop it right there and not move on to the new world. Uh, because he's king at this point. And so if you think of that Saturn energy, your Saturn returning, he doesn't want it to return. He wants to stay out there. Um, so instead of allowing one of his sons to usurp him, he begins to swallow and eat his own children. Mm. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And so whenever Rhea gives birth, he swallows his children, which the ancient Greeks... Um, kind of usurp this idea of divine childbirth from the female figures. It has a lot to do with, with how they saw the, these roles and how much they were trying to sort of subjugate the roles of women um, to where they had their gods usurp this idea of childbirth and of gestation. And so the fact that he takes the children from Rhea and swallows them and then gestates them in his own belly is is supposed to be representative of that kind of takeover of that process. And um, so few people know this, but Hades is actually the firstborn son. He is the true crown prince that was supposed to inherit the universe. So he was the son of Kronos? Of Cronus and Rhea, who who were the sons of Uranus. Oh my and god, totally makes sense, right? Saturn would totally have like a little devil baby. Yeah, and so Saturn gives birth to to Hades, and then and you know Saturn and Rhea give birth to Hades, and then swallow him. And then same with Poseidon, same same with Hera, same with Demeter. Same with, with all these figures, just swallows them one after another, except for Zeus. Zeus is the youngest. And Rhea wraps Zeus up and feeds Cronus a stone instead. It's like, okay, there's your baby, swallows him <laughs> down. Okay, good. And she takes off and she hides him on an island. Some people think this is Crete, but she hides him on an island where he's raised by a goat. And the name of the goat is Amalthea. So if you're familiar with the last unicorn, the lady Amalthea. Um, so this goat there. And Zeus is raised by this goat and drinks from the goat's milk. The goat and then breaks off one of the goat's horns. And the horn becomes the horn of cornucopia, which is just blue, blossoming with all this food and everything. And um, so that's where we get the unicorn from. Is The unicorn is actually a one-horned goat. That was the um, surrogate mother of Zeus. Oh, my God. Okay. And then would that also be kind of like, are there like Capricorn vibes in there also with the goat? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you have this one horned goat that lives on this island that is, is you know, literally mothering Zeus on, the, on this watery island. And so definite Capricorn vibes there. Mm. And so Zeus then grows strong and then um, returns to his homeland on Mount Olympus and becomes the golden sun with his golden banner and realizes, hey, you know what? 
I'm going to go slay my father. And so he, he does the same thing that Cronus did to Uranus to where Zeus is like, it's time for me to take over the throne. And so it's not as easy though. Um, whereas Cronus slayed Uranus with the scythe, Zeus needs help because Cronus has this army of Titans and this army of, of people all around him. And so Zeus instead tricks Cronus and feeds him um, his wine. He, he mixes some mustard powder into it, which makes Cronus vomit. And he vomits up his fully formed adult children. So Hades, Hera, Demeter, Poseidon, they all come up. <laughs> fully formed. That. And Zeus is like, and Zeus greets his brethren and says, okay, we need to wage war on our father and take back the throne because this is getting ridiculous. And so that becomes a 10 year battle known as the Titanomachy, which is translates to the Titan war. And it's a 10 year battle between all the forces of heaven and hell of the earth and the universe are all battling. And at the end of all of it, at the end of all of it, they finally, with the help of the fates, the Morai, they cast Cronus slash Saturn into the Tartarus, which is like the void. So if you think of the earth and the sky and the space above the sky, the Greeks believed that there was a mirror of that, going back to the, those sacred mirrors like my friend Friedemann in your episode featuring her um, at, at Sacred Years. And she, um, so they thought of the world below the underworld as a mirror of our world to where on the flip side, you have an earth type structure and then the sky above that. And then the space beyond was the Tartarus. Mm. And so they, they flung Cronus into the Tartarus and slammed the door and and locked him away and because of that i like to think of time now clicking into motion that the great universal clock has now restarted now that you have this god of frozen time being banished from the world now time is in motion and entropy is a thing Mm. and so if entropy is a thing now death is a thing and if death is a thing death needs a master. And so you have um, these, you have the, these three sons, Poseidon, Zeus, and Hades are now all arguing over who's going to be the king of the world and who's going to take the throne. And Hades, of course, says, well, I'm the eldest. I'm the crown prince. Therefore, I should be king of the world. But then Zeus argues, yeah, but you came out of our father's belly last, so technically you're the youngest. (laughs) Technicality. (laughs) And so they just keep arguing and arguing and arguing, and so they draw lots. And they draw straws, and um, Zeus draws first, and he chooses to rule over over the sky and over divine law. And so it becomes anything that has to do with divine law, with the throne on Mount Olympus, with the world, with, with ruling over all of these things, that all becomes the realm of Zeus. 
He has the lightning bolt. He has the power to rule. Then you have Poseidon. Poseidon gets the next longest straw, the next uh, shortest straw, and he becomes the kind of the god of power. He gets power over all the elements, the oceans, the monsters in the ocean, because it's said that monsters were born from the ocean, from um, Typhon and Echidna. And he becomes this, this master of all, all the monsters and the oceans and the storms and the volcanoes. And that's all Poseidon's realm is power. Like if you think of him as like Zeus's top general. And then, and then you have Hades and Hades, you know, his is considered a curse. He drew the short straw and that's where that term comes from. Drawing the short straw is from Hades who is left with the final realm, which is the underworld which is a stark, invisible realm where all of the dead souls are sent to and someone needs to manage them and someone needs to follow the laws of the fate and make sure that the laws of the fates are carried out. And so rather than being his own master, I like to think of Hades as being this ultimate bureaucrat who serves the fates instead of commanding the fates. Mm. A true, like, that idea of protect and serve. Like, yes. And actually bringing justice instead of, like, a self-serving. Yes. And so while there are so many stories of Zeus and Poseidon just going about wreaking havoc and creating chaos and, and selfishly just taking what they want and being drunk on these secular pleasures and and what have you you have hades who's toiling away and who's described in so many so many myths as being you know the modern equivalent of a sourpuss you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so he because he he's he wants to work and he's very dedicated to his duty and he's very dedicated to drawing the lines between the invisible realm and the world and so and he's the keeper of that invisible realm and he's the keeper of the fates and so in in greek culture you were not judged on how altruistic your acts were you are judged on whether or not you lived your life with passion and to its potential Ooh, that's so good yeah <laughs> and so you have these these souls that would, you know, they die and they'd be led to, to the river. And some people thought it was the river Styx. There's a lot of different poets and early poets who says that it was actually um, the, 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 what is it? Um, not the cockatus. What's the other river? I'm, I'm having, let me see here. I can find this. It's like a river of grief. Um, river of sorrow. I'm just like a river. That yeah, <laughs> I can't. Re- I can't remember the exact name of it at this moment. It's escaping me. But there is. Um, it's believed that the waters of Oceanus, the primordial god of oceans, form the barrier between the upper and the underworld. So if you think of our oceans, if you swim so far down, you're gonna come up again, upright. Once you reach the underworld. 
like passing through a mirror. Mm. And it's the so waters of Oceanus. So do you think like the underworld is just literally a like this it would look the same as here? I don't because it was um it, at least in Greek terms there's actually a map several maps of the underworld described by Ovid and Homer and <laughs> so many things and there's different areas of the underworld there's at least five areas of the underworld that are distinct it's described as being somewhat cavernous and you have five major rivers that go through the underworld that represent different emotions and it's all shadow work really it all it's all representative of this shadow psychological work it's really fascinating like what the, are the, the different emotions so the first river you encounter, let me just pull this up really quick. Rivers of the underworld, because I have notes because I'm forgetful. Um, what is so, this book you're flipping through, too? Is this just your personal notes? These are my personal notes. So I, I was working on a graphic novel about Hades and Persephone that was inspired by all of this. But um, since, again, I'm not a comic artist, I'm more of an illustrator, I've decided to take all these notes and turn it into a, a fantasy novel that's illustrated. Oh, that's so but in, cool. In the meantime, I really wanted to first explore a lot of these underworld archetypes as mirrors of the archetypes in tarot. So I'm basing my major arcana on underworld gods and goddesses exclusively. Wow. Instead of the traditional archetypes in mythology that they're based upon. So um, instead of focusing on Jupiter slash Zeus energy for the Wheel of Fortune, I'm instead going to focus on the Morai. The, the, the three fates, um, Clotho, Lachesis, and Atropos as, as the, three, the three women manipulating the wheel of fate and mm. measuring the strings for each, each person. And instead of um, that Hera, Demeter, Empress energy, I'm going to focus instead on Persephone as this idea of the seed that's in the ground, that's in this hidden place becoming the flower, and, and the harvest that you do when you embrace the cycle, when you come out of trauma, and when you come into this new place of growth that you are entitled to. Wow. And so, um, so yeah, I, I have so many notes I, I've um, been putting together for my, my own art book that all of my ribbon pieces are going to be included within that I'm currently working on right now. It's called Lemniscus, the ribbon book, and it's a collection of um, 22 art pieces. It was originally planned to be 60, but when I got to a place of self-love during this very painful, very raw series, I realized that that particular narrative for that series for me had, had come to its natural, its natural end. And then um, coming to that natural end, I began work on my tarot, which has a more hopeful bend to it. And I start integrating yellow with the red and the blue that all of my previous series had had had. And I start integrating more mythology and more mental wellness practices rather than just 
talking about mental illness, I want to talk about wellness, which is more proactive and more um, sort of self-guiding. Oh, that's so beautiful. And so, yeah. Um, But yeah. So what were the rivers? (laughs) I feel like we started there. Yeah, so the rivers. So the first river that you supposedly come across is going to be the 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 um the Archeron, which is a river of of mourning, the river of of woe and woe or misery. And that river supposedly connects to the waters of Oceanus, and it's the first river you come across. And what it represents, it literally represents you mourning your previous life, you grieving your previous life. And it represents the people from that life grieving you that the soul must pass through grief to reach this new land. Mm. And so when you, when you get on the, um, the boat on the boat of um, Charon, Charon's boat to lead you across the river and you pay him with your silver um, that was left, you know, they left a coin in the mouth of the dead to pay care on the ferryman for passage across the, the, the Archeron. Um, you are literally paying your respects to your previous life. You're grieving. And for me, the process of grieving is not healing. It's not, it's not synonymous with healing because there's some wounds that can never be healed, like losing someone. But what you can do is you can sit with them, is you can acknowledge them, is you can learn to accept that this is the new reality, whether you like it or not. And so there, there is this sort of grieving process that's represented beautifully in mythology as this passage over this river of tears to this new land. And once you get to that new land, then you um, are met by Thanatos, the god of death, who's the twin brother of Hypnos, the god of sleep. And you are led into Hades' shimmering golden palace, where you are then judged by Hades and the three kings, um, Minos I, which was not the same as Minos II, the, 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 um, the, the stepfather of the Minotaur and the creator of the labyrinth. Minos I was actually the father of the constitution of Crete and was synonymous in, in Greek culture as um, being someone that's of a justice mindset. Mm. And he had uh, two brothers that represent um, judgment as well and so one brother would judge the easterners the europeans the other one would would judge uh sorry the the, uh easterners the asians and then the westerners the europeans and then minos would have the deciding vote on what happened to them and what circle they went to and and hades would preside over all of it and one of the things that they judged based on was whether or not you fulfilled your life's purpose if you just lazily just let things happen to you, or if you just resigned yourself and did not grow or change, or you 
did not fear death enough to work hard in life, or you did not fear Hades enough and fear this moment enough to actually make something of yourself or to grow or to create great things or to accomplish great tasks or to become an athlete, become an artist, to, to honor the muses by bringing their works into reality. If you did not do those things that were intended for you, then you were going to be sent to the fields of punishment, which were past the Phlegathon, which was the river of fire. You're giving me like new appreciation for the judgment card. Oh, yeah. Because I always kind of felt like it wasn't as much like, I don't know, like this judgment day type of thing, but rather like listening to your calling. But like putting the two together and the fact that it's like ruled by Pluto and Pluto being like this like evolution and really like allowing yourself to evolve and grow and listening to this thing that you're like supposed to be doing. And it's not even necessarily that it's supposed to be like a quote unquote like good thing because Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of times like hard things are like good for your growth even though they're not like good or like feel good or like happy but like that you're engaging with it and like you're engaged with this like like listening and responding and growing oh that's so cool and you know i i like to think of the judgment card so for me i i like to think of um minos and his brothers as being very much a justice card that's the comeuppance it's it's the um the things that you have to lose you know mm. that so you can move forward and so i think of judgment as being tied to that because numerically speaking i'm working on this thing in in my own sort of podcasts that i'm working on as well but it's very early um it's going to be called strands um the strands podcast, which is me weaving together all of these different things I'm working on. You heard it here folks. Yeah, it's very new, but um, I, I've been working on calculating these sort of tarot paths. And so when you calculate someone's birth tarot based on their birth date, you can get their, their birth cards. But what's interesting is, is that numerically speaking, the way that cards break down and add up, you can kind of figure out a path and the, judgment card and the justice card are very much related um because the judgment the judgment card um which is is card 20 um you can sort of reverse it like it can break down further into the um one and one or 11. To the one and to the one and one, the eleven, which is the justice card, and then the justice card breaks down again and adds up to two, which is the high priestess card. So if you think of that as a path, like what does that natural path look like? The high priestess is about intuition. It's that um, Hecate sort of spirit of not just witchcraft, but of divining by moonlight. Hecate wasn't just a singular being, but it is in some texts described as a throng of witches uh, that led Persephone by torchlight out of the underworld the first time she left it. Wow, so healing. 
And so it's it's about trusting in your intuition, trusting in this this pale light like moonlight, trusting in witchcraft and in your sisterhood, in your support network to find your way out of the darkness. And so um, the idea of that divine knowledge that you cannot articulate those truths inside of you. I feel like the high priestess is a very powerful card that combats gaslighting. Mm-hmm. And because you know your truth, you know what's up, but like, like the witches that were then um, put on trial so does the high priestess get put on trial because the high priestess is broken down to from the justice card. And the justice card is a trial. It is the trial of the soul. It is that judgment of the soul where you, everything that you have done up to that point, starting with the fool up to card 11, you know, because this wheel of fortune rotates and now suddenly you're in this justice territory where you have to make amends for everything you've done. Mm-hmm. And your truth is being called into question. And so if the high priestess card is about your truth and the justice card is about that being called into question, you need to pay the price. You need to pay the ferryman. Oh, you're giving me the chills. Then when you move the next card after that is the judgment card where that truth is now affirmed, where this divine hand comes down and says, hey, guess what? These naysayers that were coming after you, they will no longer be an obstacle. This is your truth. This is the path you're supposed to be on. Wow. And so I was going to choose to use uh, channel Melanoe, who is a lesser known goddess to represent my justice card. I'm sorry, my judgment card, because Melanoe represents... Um, she, she was the daughter of Persephone who, um, was tricked by Zeus. Um, he, he disguised himself as Hades and laid with Persephone. And when Hades realized that the jig was up and this was not his child, he cast her into the fire and then immediately fished her out because he felt bad. And so half of her body was completely charred and blackened and the other half is beautiful like Persephone. And so she literally represents this middle ground between decay and life. Mm. And so almost like, you know, I, I, my partner and I recently saw a documentary, Fantastic Fungi, about mushrooms and how mushrooms are this beautiful doorway between decay and life and how mushrooms can even heal oil spills and restore it to these beautiful beautiful ecosystems and it's just such a fascinating documentary we saw and i feel like that's very similar to the spirit of melanoe because she is the the underworld goddess of ghosts and it's believed that during the witching hour or during the the ghost hour you know right before the dawn so you're thinking 3 4 a.m she wanders the world singing her song And all of the lost souls, the ghosts who refuse to pass over, follow her in this, in this recession. And they follow her into the dawn of the new day. Mm. What do you think that is? They're like, they don't want to grieve like that idea. Like they don't, they're too scared to go into that river. 
Well, when we think of ghosts and a lot of the folklore around around ghosts and, and lost spirits, you know, everybody believes something a little bit different. And I like to leave plenty of room for that healthy, healthy amount of doubt. Um, but everybody believes something different. And in ghosts, there's a lot of belief that there's unfinished business or that there was a trauma so great that the soul can't move forward, that it's sort of, there's a residual energy sort of stuck in place, reliving that cycle over and over again. And if you think, if you're the fool moving through the major arcana, which is a cycle of events and life events, and you get stuck on this judgment card where you have this calling where it says, hey, here's the door, step through this, except that this is the end of this previous life and you can move on to a new life and you instead turn back and say, no, I'm good. And you get stuck in judgment territory. You are going to keep reliving that cycle over and over again and getting to the door and choosing to not go through it. Mm. And so I like to think of these ghosts as, as uh, not wanting to go through the door, but that's what Melanoe's work is, is she sings her mournful song and the ancient Greeks believed she brought nightmares with her, that people would have nightmares when she and, and her, her ghosts passed, um, passed by. And that's why the ghosting hour right before the dawn is a thing, this 3 a.m., 4 a.m. sort of spooky, spooky time. Um, but for me, I like to think of it as healing, that they hear this judgment, they hear this calling, they hear this song that says, it's time to go. We need to go into the light now. The sun is coming, let's go. It's time to meet the sun. It's time to come out of the night. And so I, I think of this as like, again, going back to Night on Bald Mountain from Fantasia at the end when all of the, the demons are banished and you hear the church bells and you see the light coming and you see all of these souls with their lanterns walking on the hillside. It's, it's like that where all of the ghosts are now shown the truth. The truth is revealed, this divine truth that says, you knew the truth all along. Here is your vindication. Here is here is striking down all of these lies you've told yourself. Do you choose to accept this or do you choose to stay here? Wow. Oh my and I God. think that, and, and that's what I like to think of the judgment card as being is, do you choose to meet the door and the world is the door? Do you choose to meet the door or do you choose to stay do you choose to stay in this life? And do you choose to stay in your habits and in your cycles, in your, in your addictions and patterns? Because that, that's what tarot is, is tarot helps us see and, and divine and heal our patterns. So true. Okay, I feel like I have like a million questions. <laughs> I feel like we still need to go over the other rivers. I'm yes. like stuck yes. on this because so it's so get, interesting. That that is me is I just go off on these tangents and then it's like, oh, okay, I'm way over here now. Let's go back. No, I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, so the, the Phlegathon, the river of fire is, um, the river in, in Dante's Inferno, Dante, you know, which was meant to be a divine comedy, it was meant to be a satire of, 
of his society back in his time. Um, but he placed, he, he very much channeled all of this Greek mythology into his work. It was not a biblical text. It was mythological text. And people don't seem to realize that in a lot of cases. But he placed the phlegathon around the city of, of, of Dis, um, that the Styx merges with the phlegathon. The Styx is the river of hatred, and the phlegathon is the river of fire. And in mythology, Styx, um, as a personification, was in love with the phlegathon, which is why the two rivers meet. Mm. Um and so one represents, the sticks represents hatred. It represents that you have to cross over that anger. You have to cross over that, that, that hatred for what you used to be, that self-deprecating part of yourself. You have to cross over that. And sometimes when you cross over that, you cross into a place of anger. Mm-hmm. And so you can almost think of the rivers as being connected in a way with the five stages of grief. I was just thinking of that. Yeah, but in, in a different order. And so, you know, you have your, your river of, of sorrow, which can be depression. You have the sticks, which to me, the sticks is almost like a kind of bargaining in a way. Um, you have the phlegathon, which is anger. And then um, you have... The, the, the cockatus, which is wailing, which could be a denial or, a, or something, but um, the cockatus is one of the largest rivers and because it, it connects with everything, and it's the river wailing. Um, I feel like and it's, it's so, like shame. shame it's, it's shame, and it's crying, and it's, it's lamentation that you're lamenting everything that you haven't done you're mm -hmm. lamenting you're lamenting your investment you're lamenting everything you haven't done it's lamentation it's the river of lamentation so you have grief which is um the the acheron you have sticks which is hatred which is i think self-hatred you have the phlegathon which is fire which i think is anger uh, and wrath, when you're just mad, you want to smash things. And um, and then you have the cockatus, which is lamentation. And then the final river is the Lethe, which is, to me, the most interesting. Uh, the Lethe is one of my favorite rivers. The Lethe is the river of oblivion or forgetfulness. Mm. And... The Lethe is the one, you know, there's a lot of these myths or a lot of these stories where when you wander into an underworld space, they say, don't drink the water. They're literally talking about the Lethe. Because in Greek mythology, the Lethe surrounded this good part of the underworld. So real quickly, I'm just going to tell you the five areas that you can be sent to in Greek mythology in Hades. Um throne room when you're judged you can be sent to um if you were a a soul that didn't do anything that you did not obey the fates but you weren't bad you weren't good you just, you didn't do anything 
you just kind of like whatever then you get sent to the fields of asphodel right outside Hayes palace like you just get kicked out of his palace into these fields of asphodel and asphodel is a type of lily that's tasteless scentless there's nothing to it and it was considered a last resort food for ancient greeks so they labeled it the food of the dead and they said that when you smell it you can't feel anything you just become completely numb and so there's stories of Odysseus and, and other people coming across this, this river and, um, uh, sorry, this field of asphodel and the shades just don't sense anything. They, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't smell, they just wander. And the underworld is entropy. And so they wander until they literally fade from existence and become nothing. Wow. And that's their punishment for, for flouting the fates is that they no longer get to exist. Mm. And um, so then if you lived a wicked life, you would be sent to the fields of punishment, which in some cases was in the Tartarus, but you get sent to the fields of punishment, which is where you have things like everything people associate with um, Dante's Inferno, where you have Tantalus, who could not satiate his thirst or his hunger and was kept under a fruiting tree and in a body of water, but he could never drink from it and he could never eat the fruit. You have all kinds of figures like that in the fields of punishment, and they're sent there. And um, when they do wicked things that offend the gods. And um, if you lived a just life, a, a really good virtuous life, you'd be sent to the Elysian Fields. And the Elysian Fields was a place in the underworld where it was green and beautiful, and it was surrounded by poppies. So if you think of the poppy fields in the Wizard of Oz, and poppies usually grow near water. And so you think of, you know, all of these poppies and everything. And um, then... And, and the, the Elysian fields were surrounded by the river Lethe, the river of forgetfulness and oblivion. And so these souls that were in this sort of Greek heaven, but it's kind of like a sub-heaven, they could, you know, sit there partying, playing music, a land of milk and honey. And, or if they wanted to, if they lived three life if, if they wanted to be reborn they could choose to be reincarnated at this point from the elysian fields and if they wanted to be reincarnated to give it a second go then all they had to do was wander over to the leafy drink from the leafy and they would forget their previous life and then be reborn into a new life wow and then they could go through it again now, if a soul went through this three times, if they were judged three times as virtuous in front of Hades, three times, then they got upgraded to the Isle of the Blessed, which was Hades' only estate on the earth, on land, not in the underworld. And so the Isle of the Blessed was this island where it was supposedly just amazing, all the time, just like total Greek heaven, everyone's partying, everyone's drinking, there's music, there's, there's, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, um, and it was this beautiful, lush, green place that was just 
full of joy. And it was the place where people judged three times as virtuous went or where athletes or heroes who did an impossible task and committed a great deed, they would, they would be just sent there automatically. They didn't have to go through the three, the three lifetimes. If you did something that was so great, then you just go, you, you just go straight to the Isle of the Blessed, which was, um, inspired by the myth of Heracles slash Hercules who had to accomplish the 12 impossible tasks Mm. in order to, in order to um, be let out of the underworld. And he created so much trouble for Hades that Hades was like, okay, you finish the task, just get out, (laughs) just leave. And when he left, he passed by the, this white poplar tree, which was actually the transmuted, uh, body of Hades' first wife, who was uh, Luke, which means white poplar. And his first wife was a mortal woman that had um, succumbed to entropy in the underworld. And when she did, he transmuted her into the white tree, which signifies the border on the Isle of the Blessed. And so when um, Hercules passed into the Isle of the Blessed, he took a branch from the white poplar tree and fashioned his crown um, to represent his victory. And that is why Olympic athletes today um, are depicted as being crowned by leaves. So it's not actually laurels. Those are for poets. It's supposed to be poplar leaves, which is for athletes. Wow, you're blowing my mind. I know I sound like a bro- broken record, but like, ah, this is so cool. And um, I'm sorry if it's just kind of going in all these directions. I just am so in love with all this myth because I can tie it to so much of my healing and so much okay, let's of hear my about own journey. That because I want to like bring it for full circle and like how has this myth really helped your life helped your mental health or been like a mirror to it and like what has it given you well one thing is i i've been doing a lot of my own study on trauma psychology and on um uh, attachment theory and so trauma psychology is you know the study of the, the traumatized brain and there's a lot of studies that show that the brain actually becomes physically scarred even by emotional trauma Mm. and that the physical scars on the brain, especially on the amygdala, which is kind of like the alarm bells of our brain um, that signal to, to react from a place of threat or fear um, that those scars are the same, regardless of whether or not the trauma was physical or emotional, the scars are actually the same. And so there's a lot of studies that show that the the traumatized brain, once it's scarred, the amygdala becomes overactive and begins flooding the body with cortisol. And if this happens in childhood and if you're constantly being triggered, you're constantly having those alarm bells set off like an overactive car alarm that's just constantly beeping, Um, your body is constantly being assaulted with this cortisol and dopamine. And in a, in a way that makes your trauma addictive. Mm -hmm. And so people can, when they first make that first step 
into stepping out of their trauma, into stepping out of that Eight of Swords energy, going back to that card. When they make that first step, a curious thing happens where they become addicted to their trauma, where they, they tell the story and then they just keep telling it over and over and over and over again, the same story over and over again, but they don't make the steps towards moving past it, going through the door. They keep coming to that, to that calling and then staying because they're addicted to that dopamine rush, that, that cortisol rush. Now, when that happens, you keep reliving the story, reliving this narrative, staying in that eight of swords energy over and over and over and over again. Eventually the cortisol actually damages your DNA. And so your trauma becomes not only generational, not only can you pass down your damaged DNA to your children, but it also contributes to the onset of autoimmune illnesses, heart disease, cancer, and things like that. There's, there's a lot of evidence that um, childhood trauma can absolutely be a contributing factor and a comorbid condition with um, illnesses in adulthood. Uh, for example, I, I have a lot of trauma in my childhood and a lot that I write about. And I, um, I've recently found out that I have a diagnosis for multiple sclerosis, which um, is Latin for many scars. And my immune system literally attacks the nerves in my brain and um, the, the protein sheaths on the nerves in my brain and strips them down to where I have a lot of chronic pain and forgetfulness and brain fog. And um, I'm lucky enough that I'm still mobile, but I, I have a lot of numbness in my right thigh and in my ankles and even some in my right hand. And so, you know, there's a lot of fear that if I don't take care of myself and let this continue, I might not be able to continue drawing. And that's something that I've had to deal with and why I've leaned so heavily into my, my writing actually in recent, in the recent year. Um, but that also contributes to my bipolar diagnosis. I was originally diagnosed with bipolar, but after talking to my psychiatrist, she says that mood disorders are, really commonly comorbid with conditions like multiple sclerosis where their physical brain damage can alter the mood to create mood fluctuations of highs and lows. And I, um, you know, that's a lot to swallow. It's a lot to deal with those triggers that are constantly creating this cycle, this addictive cycle and retelling the story. And there's a lot of, of fear in living in a body that I no longer feel I have control of. And there is a lot of stigma in living in a brain that I realize can come across as an unreliable narrator when I tell my stories. Um, and when I live in my experiences and live in my truth. Um, and I found that mythology for me, that leaning heavily into the cycle of the fool's journey, leaning heavily into this concept of treading into the shadow to find the light has helped me accept that truth because these are heavy things. These, these dealing with trauma and chronic illness, it's heavy and people want to make light of it. They want to say, Oh no, don't talk about that. Oh no, don't think about that. Oh no, 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 no. Don't be negative. Don't, don't be sad. Don't, don't be that. 
But I feel that these these dark, romantic, beautiful stories have allowed me to lean into it in a way that is not triggering. So it's almost like, you know, to forgive the pun, a literal Trojan horse into my trauma by leaning into these myths. Instead of being triggered by these memories, I can instead think about these myths and kind of circumvent the trigger and actually access my trauma through storytelling. Wow. Um, Your self-awareness yeah. is so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. It, it's been a lot of hard work. <laughs> it is hard, and, isn't it? Yeah, and but it's it's beautiful work. It's it's necessary work. It's I remember the first day I I entered my my therapist's office and this was my fifth therapist because I like to think of finding a therapist as like dating. Oh my god, you totally. Know? You don't have to stay with them if you don't like stay them. with the one that <laughs> yes. that you don't feel safe with. Totally. And I, I, and so I've advised so many people close to me to where I tell them, I'm like, here's the thing you need to remember. You are not interviewing to work with them. They are interviewing to treat you. Totally. That first session, they are interviewing with you. They are asking you if they could be your doctor in that first session. You're not interviewing with them to be a candidate for their treatment. Yeah, and that stigma makes us feel like our self-esteem is so low that, like, we should just feel grateful that anybody will help us. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Which is such bullshit. And, you know, and we look at these doctors as these authorities that are going to automatically know what pill to give us, what what practice to tell us to do, that these people are automatically going to know how to help us when therapy, you know, you, you get as much out of it as you put in. And I feel like it is one of the most necessary places where you have to be an active collaborator in your own health rather than a passive receiver of care. You have to actively collaborate. You have to actively practice that self-awareness and for me mythology gave me a window into that that it gave me a window into self-awareness in a way that I was unable to access because of of my my trauma responses wow and so that that's something that I really want to help others with because the creative mind Um, I remember early in my healing, I had a book open called, um, called The Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. It's amazing. It's, it, it was life-changing. It was recommended to me by my friend Eli at a drawer forever. Number four, um, who is, is a really, really talented artists that deals with a lot of mental health themes in their work. Um, But this book was really life-changing for me. And I had the book open. It had this diagram on the book of the traumatized brain. And it was discussing what happens when the brain is triggered. And it was discussing how the, um, the the speech centers of the brain actually completely shut down which is why we're unable to actually speak or articulate our trauma when we're experiencing it. It's not that 
we're so traumatized to a point of fear that we can't speak about is that the speech centers literally go black. They shut down in the brain. There's no electrical activity happening there. And the imaging centers that control imaging, especially when dreaming, completely light up. They completely light up. And so you're seeing images, you're feeling sensations from the, from this moment. And interestingly, your physical body is reacting as if that is actually happening in real time. So when you are seeing these things and feeling these sensations, you're, the pain you're feeling is real. And that's what people don't realize is that they think, oh, it's all in your head. And yes, it's triggered by, by your brain, but those, that pain you're feeling is real. It's real. It's a real sensation that you are feeling based on these memories and these imaging centers. And when I was looking at this diagram, I suddenly had this aha moment where I remembered some of my early, early art training um, in my just very limited college experience because um, it was limited, but I took some art classes and I ran and grabbed one of my art textbooks and I flipped that open and I had them open side by side. The body keeps the score and this, this beginner's art textbook from college. And it was a chapter on the creative brain. And the creative brain has, um, it talks about left brain, right brain. I'm sure people are familiar with that, this left brain, right brain, left brain, right brain. And how a lot of these art practices like drawing upside down and like, um, what is it? Peripheral drawing and things like that are meant to teach you as a new stu art student how to access the imaging side of your brain and turn off the language side of your brain so that you are observing rather than judging what you're drawing. And it was fascinating to me because when I was looking at the traumatized triggered brain versus the creative brain, I realized there is a lot of similarity between the, the state of the brain in these two places that in both cases, the imaging side is activated and the, language side is um, completely turned off. Wow. And so that got me thinking about what creativity can do for the traumatized brain. And, I, and I'm sure lots of people are familiar with art therapy. It's more than just soothing at this point. It's communication. Oh, my God. So true. I've never thought about it like that, but... Wow. And so I realized that early on, the only way for me to articulate my traumas, my relational traumas, my, my, my sexual and my mental and emotional traumas was to draw them, was to write stories about them. And because I could not access them directly, because if I tried to access them directly, the speech centers would shut down. And I would just be paralyzed in a state of being triggered. Which would push me back into that Eight of Swords territory of me just reacting to my environment rather than responding to my environment. I would just be in the state of panic and, and anxiety and my relationships were suffering because of that. And so I began drawing and I began drawing my ribbon series informed by all of this mythology 
and all of these symbols and informed by tarot and informed by my research on trauma psychology and attachment theory, I started drawing and I started coming up with my own sort of visual vocabulary of symbols, the ribbons, the crows, the owls, the white dresses, the masks, the cracked masks, the, 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 female figure, the blind satyr, the the flowers and, and Victorian floriography, it all became a wordless way of communicating these stories of trauma that I was unable to articulate verbally. Wow. And it makes me think about like using a different perspective like in the Eight of Swords, like taking off the blindfold and like looking at the situation from a different way so then you yes. can speak your truth. 100%. Because it, again, like trusting in that high priestess mentality. Um, in my high priestess card that I, I, I finished, you know, I was channeling Hecate, but I featured her as a veiled figure with her eyes covered. And so if you imagine just going inward and trusting your intuition, trusting the truth will come out, and especially be coming out of a toxic relationship with a very well-liked individual. Mm-hmm. You know, and there, there's something that happens when, when you're someone like me and you're traumatized and you have chronic illness and a mood disorder, you tend to become the person who is triggered in order to prove that other person right. Right. And so, you know, a lot of studies show that people who have bipolar more are more likely to be the abused person in a relationship than the abuser, which it's the stigma that they're the abuser, that they're just flying off the handle all the time. But more often than not, there's something that happens where, you know, say if you get in a relationship with a narcissist, the narcissistic personality will do what they can to elicit that response from you. Mm-hmm. To feel like they're better than you. Exactly. And to also prove to people around them that they're the victim. Mm. And so there are these truths that I did not know how to articulate. Oop, hang on. One second. Sorry, I unplugged my mic. No, you're fine. (laughs) (laughs) um, So there are these truths I did not know how to articulate. Um, even about my experience go, coming out of my relationship because I knew that I appeared to be the unhinged party, that I appeared to be the, the, the toxic one, the angry one, the emotional one, the traumatized one. And there were just, I knew that that's not the whole story. But when you're triggered, you can't articulate. Your speech center's shut down. And even if you verbally tell someone your story, if you're in that high priestess state and you try to tell people what's going on in that high priestess point of view, people are going to look at you and be like, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. And so I realized that art and myth are, are truth. You know, they say that myth is a false thing that tells the truth. 
You know, that myth is our window into collective wisdom and into collective truth. It is enduring because it's true. Because when you read about Persephone, um, becoming both queen of the underworld and returning to her place as the spring princess and how she then becomes a symbol of embracing the cycles. You talk about the, the cult of Persephone and how they embrace that cycle of rebirth, that cycle of reincarnation through the, the Eleusian mysteries. Um, Persephone has become the symbol of going into darkness in order to find the light of accessing your trauma in order to come out of it. And that's, that's enduring because it's true. It's always going to be true. It's a wisdom that we can't articulate, but that we can scratch the surface of through storytelling and myth. And so that is what mythology and tarot have done for me is that they have acted as these, as I said before, Trojan horses into my healing, into these things that I can't communicate or articulate directly. And not only have given me a way to practice expanding my self-awareness, but in communicating my truth in a way that I've come to understand is inspiring for others. You know, when I work a show and people come up to my booth, the way I interact with them has completely changed since embracing mythology. I used to work comic conventions and just, you know, sell, sell my pieces and people would, would gracious people compliment me and, and, and I would be grateful and there'd be a transaction and that would be it. Uh, now I have people come up to, to my booth and there's more than just a monetary transaction or a compliment. There's a connection and people see my work and they see the truth that can't be articulated in that space between us. They see that piece because art is communication. And suddenly they start telling me their stories and I, people tell me about their chronic illness their, their mood disorders, their mental illness, their abusive relationships, their bipolar. People will show me their self-harm scars. They'll tell me about their suicide attempts and how art like this helped them through it. I've cried with people. I've held people. I have worked with them. I have maintained contacts with people that bought my art. Because this mythology is enduring and it's binding it creates a community because it speaks to things that can't be spoken wow that's so beautiful how has it been like sharing your story on a blog like that has to take like so much bravery when you've never done it before and you haven't like gotten those rewards of connection like that first like writing that first post um it was scary at first. I remember fretting over it, but not for very long. 
Um, it was kind of interesting because I, I didn't plan on, on, on any of this playing out the way it did. I knew I wanted to do lovely fantasy pieces. I knew that masks and ribbons and birds had always resonated with me since, you know, loving Jim Henson and Labyrinth and, and fantasy and eighties, dark fantasy, like all in childhood. But after I got my, my, my bipolar diagnosis and I had a complete breakdown from everything else I was going through, I was in an art supply store and I was looking at pencils as, as an artist does. And one stood out to me to where it was, a, it was slightly thicker than the others and rounder than the others. And I pulled it out. Cause I was like, why is this one different on the rack? And then when I pulled it out, I realized it was blue on one end and red on the other. And I had this like aha moment, like light shined down upon me. Like, you know, Harry Potter holding his wand for the first time. I was like, oh my gosh, this is the thing. <laughs> I love and, that. And, and I'm, I must have looked completely crazy because I was so excited about this in the store. And I, I grabbed a handful of them and I took them to the counter and I bought them, these double-end pencils, and I took them home and I remember holding them in my hand. I said, it's like me. It's these two sides, these two extremes that I don't know how to balance where I swing between these moments of creativity and high energy and, and obsessive um, talking, you know, they call it flying thoughts and, 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 and compulsive speech. And then I swing down into numbness and exhaustion and fatigue and chronic pain and so it's like, I'll, I'll be on fire, creating, creating, creating. And then I hit a wall and then I can barely feed myself. And so it was this moment where it's like, I don't know how to balance that within me. I don't know how to flatten those hills and make that in-between state last longer where I am more productive reliably uh, before I enter this anxious staying up all night creativity. That middle state is more reliable. And I, um, so I thought to myself, what if I balance the red and the blue? What if I just start drawing with both ends and I balance them both and I find a way to blend them and I work on this in the physical realm. I blend this physically as a way of teaching myself how to blend this within myself. Wow. And that pencil, you know, I started drawing in this way. That pencil became the gateway to the blog because I fretted and fretted. I knew when I was drawing this with the red and the blue that it was all about the secret bipolar. And I was terrified. I was terrified to tell people because when I told my partner, there was no support there. When I told my friends, I lost friends. When I told my family, they blame me and things I did like, oh, this must have been because of this. No, no, this is often a genetic disorder or because of childhood trauma from things that were done to me in childhood that I had no control over um, or it's genetic and it was formed in utero. It, it, it's a neurological condition. And I was afraid I was it was scary it's really really scary and so finally you know and some of it might be the disorder itself oversharing is a thing with mood disorders uh, which I tend to do but I just finally said you know what 
I needed this kind of art. I needed it. I needed someone who wrote about this. I kept searching and searching in earnest for sources on bipolar that were written by people who have bipolar. And what I found was clinicians who would write about bipolar, but from an othering standpoint, like clinicians who'd be like the patient, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Or I found um, sensationalist blogs who'd be like, oh, Van Gogh and Emily Dickinson and, and all these artists had bipolar. And look at all these people who had bipolar. They were so beautiful and so creative, but man, what freaks. And it just felt like, you know, like an old geek show from the 1930s where you're scrolling through all of these people and being like, oh, wow, their creativity came from being unhinged. How cool. Yeah. <laughs> and then and 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 then you had a third kind where it was blogs about bipolar, but it was written and 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 maintained by family members and ex-partners, former partners of people who have this disorder, just complaining about, about the person who has the disorder and just complaining and writing and saying things like, I, I read the sentence that said bipolar people cannot feel love. And that's, man, that was, that was, that was a pain that I felt. I felt that deeply to my soul because I can tell you firsthand that I love not only do I love but I love deeply and that's as someone who has it and as someone that has a wonderful therapist who deeply understands my condition I am told and I have experienced that not only do I feel emotion but I feel it at a greater intensity and capacity than the average person and that's maintaining that emotion, maintaining that emotion and regulating it. That is, that is the, the challenge. And so my goal with this, you know, when I, when I read all these three different types of bipolar writings, you know, the, the, cl the clinical, the, Hollywood diaries and then you know the freak show and then the the people complaining and 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 seeking support because they they they're in a challenging situation with someone who is still in a disordered state of bipolar um I realized you know I want to make a fourth kind I'm going to make the fourth kind and that's the first person account because people need to know what this is and people need to know what this feels like. And there are people like me who want to heal, who want to feel better, who want to be balanced, who want to be in love with themselves and not just in spite of the mood disorders and the chronic illness and the, um, the diseases but who want to love themselves with those things, who want to love themselves wholly and truly and step out of that shame and step into a place of healing and even leadership. There are people like me who want that. I've met so many brilliant artists who struggle with this. And so I thought, 
I'm going to do it. It's worth the risk. I don't care. I'm not afraid. I don't care what people write about me or say about me. I know the truth. I know my truth and I know what I feel. And I know that my desire to be in my highest and greatest good is genuine. And that's all that matters. And all that matters is that I want to help others by doing this. And so it's, it's worth the risk. It's, it's worth it to, to put it out there. Oh, you're so inspiring. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for letting me ramble. <laughs> oh my God. You're so articulate. It wasn't rambly at all. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm married to a Gemini, so I'm totally okay. <laughs> used to it. And I admire your brilliance. I love Gemini's. So yeah. My partner's a Scorpio, so he's on the quiet side. So <laughs> I'm a Scorpio rising, so I love oh, to listen. Yes. <laughs> um, it makes a great team. It does. I feel like I'm, I mean, you guys have so many great things to say. It's like very easy to just listen. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Oh and thank God. you so much for listening and being interested. It's um, even just talking about it and putting it out there is, is also very healing. I like to look for the wisdom in everything I'm doing. Yes. I think you're going to help so many people. This was well, healing you. just for me to listen to. I feel thank like you. you hit on like so many things that I've, you know, thought of in the past but haven't ever had the resource for somebody to like tell me about or um yeah I just feel like I've made so many different discoveries and you just have so much knowledge I can't wait for you to start your own podcast I I can't wait either it's a work in progress it's been one heck of a couple of years <laughs> totally and after all of this healing, I'm happy to say that I, um, I'm in a partnership that has been very secure and that continues to teach me um, in my studies of, of attachment theory. You know, I, one of the things that really, really resonated is I read that people who are in an insecure attachment style, such as anxious, preoccupied, or fearful attachment, um, when they're paired with a, a secure partner, it can upgrade them to secure attachment. Um, it I can upgrade that. the insecure person to a, a secure state of mind. And um, so I, I'm with a partner that is just so supportive and so loving. And we just, we connect on just such a level and um and I, i'm helping to raise his son and so parenthood has been a journey <laughs> yeah i bet and um it's it's been a journey and so the journey continues and it's been a lot of adjustment so it's it's slowed down my art production i'd be lying if i said otherwise uh, your um, art is beautiful by the way you. Thank you so much. I, it has slowed down my production on um, the art book for the original Ribbon series, my tarot and my podcast, but it is coming. We're, we just, you know, when, when you meet someone and you move in together and then suddenly you're, 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 you're parenting, you know, a young child, there, there's a lot to adjust and get used to. And so 
a very pleasant tower kind of energy where it's like, okay, so all those old routines don't exist anymore. <laughs> we need to come up with new routines. Like I had to completely give up my home office to, to, to my son's bedroom. And so that's his bedroom now. And so now I had to make a new office. And so it's just a lot of, you know, the invisible work that Hades does in a way yes. <laughs> behind the scenes. I'm doing all of this invisible work to make the art and the podcast happen. It's just nothing that is. It's all in good time, you know, postable or <laughs> totally. It'll happen when it's meant to. I feel that. I feel that deeply. Where can people find you and purchase maybe some of your art or some of your prints or look out for um, your blog or where to connect with you? All of those things. Absolutely. My website is Sketchy Craft. My last name is Craft, K-R-F-T. Um, with a K. And so Sketchy Craft, it's both a pun and my name, <laughs> uh, .com. So sketchcraft.com. Yeah, you'll find on there links to my web store. Um, I'm working on a Patreon right now, a Patreon blog, where I plan on hosting um, different chat groups. I also write guided meditations that work you through visualizations. I also do tarot write-ups. And um, I'm doing these kind of essay blogs where I explore the different myths and symbols behind the tarot and um, and then doing a lot of my own writing while I, I explore and put together the art book. So that'll all be on that website. Um, I'm most active on Instagram, also under Sketchy Craft, so at Sketchy Craft. And then my Twitter, also Sketchy Craft. And then um, I also have Facebook, which you can find facebook.com slash sketchycraft, um, which was also under Sarah Renee Craft Art and Illustration. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of everywhere. <laughs> Yay. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. This was so fun, and I'm so glad. <laughs> Me too. And he said... I know you, I know you, young man. I know you by the state of your hands. Hello again, it's Anna. Thank you so much for listening. I'm sure you loved today's episode because what's not to love, Sarah is amazing. Definitely connect with her on Insta at sketchycraft with a K, sketchycraft.com to find out more about her art and her prints and where you can get all of the good info. I hope that you enjoyed. I hope that you're doing well. I hope that you go on iTunes and give me five stars and rate and review this podcast because it would make me so happy and other people could find this show. Definitely, again, check out my Instagram, Blind Love Radio. Connect with me there and tell me all your dirty secrets so I could post them online. I'm obsessed with this. If you listen to the end, all the way to the end, I love you. You are the true crew, okay? You get an extra fist bump. 
I guess we're not even allowed to do that right now. You get air kisses. All right. Either way, I love you all. Sending you good vibes. Peace. Also, so rude of me not to mention our intro and outro and the whole show song. Coulter Wall, Devil Wears a Suit and Tie. How on theme for this episode. So perfect. I loved it. You love it. Mwah. Let me learn you some I know a few turns to make all the girls dance. Don't you know the devil wears a suit and tie? I saw him driving down the 61 and early to black. Why? Cotton feeling sharp as a knife.